Well, welcome back to the Gambone Law Podcast. I am Alfonso Gambone, and as always, on our podcast, I am joined by top attorneys from various fields and who have practices that focus on areas typically outside of the criminal defense world. Now, today, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Rick Collins. Rick has a criminal defense practice, which he maintains in New York and pretty much nationally. Uh, In addition to defending the the traditional criminal cases, Rick also is heavily involved in performance-enhancing drugs. And today, the topic that I wanted to discuss with, with Rick is the recent proposed changes that the DEA um, may have coming with regards to controlled substances and telemedicine. This is Rick's really, Rick is really the the foremost authority, foremost legal authority in this area, and I'm happy to have him on. I frequently consult with Rick on various cases. He is a great attorney, and Rick, welcome again to the podcast. Thank you so much, Al. Thanks for having me on. Rick, I want to talk about this proposed change to the DEA uh, to the DEA regulations regarding telemedicine, and I think a lot of this is coming because we've now, I think it's safe to say, we've come out of this pandemic, mm-hmm. and now things are going back to hopefully normal, and we're never going to return back to the days of everything on Zoom, and if fingers crossed. So can you kind of kind of explain what's going on here? So if, if you're in the community of folks who care about testosterone and testosterone replacement uh, as, a, as a therapy, you've probably heard about this on, on social media. There's been kind of a, a, a sky is falling uh, movement going on. Uh, it, it, it's the internets have fired up, right, uh, about this issue. I've been hearing stuff from social media influencers that, um, you know, claims that if you are on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, and, um, and this new proposed rule from the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, uh, goes into effect, then basically for the rest of your life, you're going to have to see your doctor every 30 days to get a refill of testosterone. And people have been you know, going crazy about this. Obviously, it's very upsetting to a lot of people because the inconvenience would be you know, through, the, through the roof. And a lot of people are seeing clinics uh, for their testosterone replacement that may be located in other states. So a lot of people are, are seeing physicians um, via the internet you know, on, on video and, and you know, that's the way they're interacting with their doctors. They're getting their lab tests in their own state but the doctor who's prescribing, the pr- practitioner who's prescribing testosterone may be located in Florida or, or anywhere else. And so this has been like a huge issue now um, in the bodybuilding community, in the testosterone replacement community. Um, and, and it's being interpreted, I think, as this idea that this is the government cracking down on testosterone, that the government doesn't like testosterone, that the government doesn't like masculinity in general, that this is a way of, of crushing down on, on folks who want to, you know, get this masculine drug and the DEA is inserting itself into this and they're trying to destroy TRT. Uh, so that's, that's what you're hearing if you tune into a lot of influencers that, that you know, have huge coverage. So Rick, now this, this proposed regulation, this would cover drugs beyond testosterone, it would cover all controlled substances, correct? 
So, so yeah. So I, I think it's 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 kind of a you know it, we need to take a step back and and figure out what this rule says. Um, and as lawyers, we have the benefit of a, a lot of training that helps us interpret rules and helps us understand a lot of gobbledygook language sometimes, um, and lay people may not be able to pull it out. So first of all, first off the bat, there is nothing in this proposed rule that says that anybody who's on TRT, anybody, will have to see their doctor every 30 days. It's absolutely false. And also, there's nothing about this rule that is focused specifically on TRT. That's not what this is about. This is not an anti-TRT rule, proposed rule by the DEA. Now, I agree that the government has not been testosterone friendly in many ways. And the FDA did a black box warning a few years ago, claiming that testosterone causes all these cardiovascular risks. And, and there's a lot of folks in, in the medical community who take exception to a lot of that, that push. And so, so I can see how people want to kind of frame the narrative in the way that this rule furthers evidence that the government hates testosterone. But that's not what this is. This is a, a rule that applies to all controlled substances. And the purpose of the rule, the premise, the underlying ideas of the rule have nothing to do with testosterone. So let's go back to 2008. So in 2008, there was this 18-year-old kid who went online and was able to connect with a doctor that he never met who gave him Vicodin over the internet, kind of a, a rogue clinic. You know, there, there were lots of rogue pharmacies at the time. Kid gets Vicodin, overdoses, dies. Okay? And so Congress immediately tries to figure out what can we do to stop situations like this. And this kid became the poster child for a new law that went into effect in 20, 2008. And that law basically said, look, if you want to get a controlled substance, and Congress was thinking about Vicodin, right? That's what opiates, you know, painkillers, narcotics, drugs of addiction. If you want to get a prescription from somebody over the internet to give you these, you know, the, these opiates or, or, or Vicodin or oxycodone, you're going to need to see that doctor in person first. This can't be something that the doctor can just mail you without ever having seen the doctor. And so that law went into effect in 2008. People may not remember it, but because it went into 2008 for controlled substances, it went into effect for all controlled substances, including testosterone, which is a Schedule Three drug since 1990. So... Yes, testosterone kind of got bootstrapped into this 2008 law, which requires an in-person medical evaluation. That's, that's the, the core of what this whole thing is about. Now, something happened in 2020 that everybody, everybody watching this knows, right? And in January 2020, the DEA took a provision in that law which said that if there's a national health emergency, you can kind of put a moratorium. You can kind of suspend the enforcement of that law. So in, in 2020, the DEA said, look, everybody's staying home. We, we want people to stay home. We, it's harder for people to get to their doctors. So for the term of this national health emergency, we will not require in advance a, an in-person medical evaluation. And so for the last three years, that's kind of been where if you're on any controlled substance, including testosterone, 
you can you can be interacting with a clinic in Florida or Texas or anywhere else without an in-person medical evaluation under the law that went into effect in 2008. So now, what's what's new? Well, what's new is that the Biden administration has now decided that this national health emergency is coming to an end. Good, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, we do. We do want to get back to normal if we can. And so there's actually a date that the Biden administration says is the date that the health emergency ends, and it's May 11th. May 11th, it's, we're, we're done. So the question is, what do we do about these online prescriptions for controlled substances? And so this proposed rule, which the DEA came out with last month, is their effort to kind of find a way to make this work where it doesn't go back to what it was prior to the national health emergency. In other words, it doesn't go back to requiring an in-person medical evaluation before, before the prescription. What it does say is that as of May 11th, if it goes into effect, then you can get a prescription for a controlled substance over the internet, but within 30 days after you get that prescription, you need to see a doctor. And they're all, again, they're thinking of it in terms of Vicodin, they're thinking of it in terms of addictive painkillers and things like that. But yes, it will apply to TRT. It will not apply if you've ever seen a doctor. It's only if you've never seen the doctor. If you haven't seen the doctor, then within 30 days of getting the prescription, you'll need to see that practitioner. There's a couple exceptions, but that's basically what the rule is saying. So in a situation where you're receiving, hypothetically speaking, if you're, if you're receiving your TRT from a telemedicine clinic through a physician, and it's post May 11th, and now at this point you have to schedule an in-person visit with that doctor, is that right? So the DEA kind of makes it a little easier with these little other little wrinkles to it. So if you got your initial prescription, your initial relationship with that clinic you, you've mentioned, let's say it's a clinic in Florida, during this national health emergency, you've got a grace period of 180 days to see the doctor. So you're, you're not bound by the 30 days. You've got to see the doctor within six months of the rule going into effect. And uh, as long as you do that, there's no requirement that you see the doctor again. This, this rule doesn't require, the law doesn't require other visits. State laws can vary state by state about for telemedicine and for about controlled substances. So anybody prescribing any clinic needs to know its own state laws. But this specific law gives that 180-day grace period, but it also gives another option. And the other option is that if you don't want to take a, a JetBlue Southwest, you know, Frontier, low-cost airline to go down that one time to see the doctor, if, if that's not what you want to do, then you can see a doctor in your own state as an alternative. As long as he's got a DEA license or she has a DEA license. And now there's that's where the, the devil's in the details. Because now you and that doctor need to be in an audiovisual encounter, you know, Zoom interaction with the practitioner in Florida. It may be that local doctors may want to not want to do that. They may not be available for that. There, there's certainly difficulties involved in that option for sure, but that is an option. So now this one in-person medical visit covers you for life? 
Well, I, I would think that medical ethics and, and maybe state laws probably require more than just one time and never coming back. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that some states would consider that good medical practice. No, I'm right. not sure that, you know, if you went and you spoke to the most orthodox endocrinologist, they would say that you need to see a doctor because you need to have certain physical tests. You need to make sure you don't have some kind of testicular growths or, or you know, indica indicative of cancer or, or a digital rectal exam. If you have a prostate the size of a cantaloupe or whatever it is that they would they would suggest that nobody should be getting a, a prescription for testosterone without those things. I'm not sure that a lot of this rule really should apply to testosterone. Again, I think maybe it makes sense for, for Vicodin and oxycodone and things where, you know, within 30 days, you want to make sure this isn't an addict who's just right. going to potentially overdose. Nobody's overdosing in 30 days on testosterone in, in human history, to my knowledge. So I'm not sure that the time period or, or you know, it, it, I think it may be overly burdensome for clinics and for patients. And there's a lot of people who feel that way and who've written to the DEA because they had a 30-day comment period that ended on March 31st. And a lot of people wrote to them and said, no, 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 this shouldn't apply to testosterone or there should be a, a lesser standard applied to testosterone. So, you know, this rule didn't go into effect yet. It, it's a proposed rule and DEA is now assessing what they will do. So it's fair to say that with regards to this proposed regulation, that one visit covers you, but with regards to how often you should visit the doctor after that, that becomes an issue of medical ethics, medical yeah. practice, correct? Yes, and, and state law. Okay. And, and just, I guess, the main takeaway, I think, you know, to kind of wrap it up, I guess, is this idea that you need to see the doctor every 30 days, which has been put out by some, you know, what are perceived as very reliable influencers is just absolutely not true, um, absolutely false. And, and the idea that this is just targeting TRT, that this is the DEA's way of, of destroying the testosterone market, um, testosterone is more of an afterthought. It's just sort of lumped in because it is a controlled substance because in, in the late 80s, Ben Johnson you know, won the Seoul Olympics in the 100 meters, ran really fast, got the gold medal, Canadian sprinter, uh, beat the American Carl Lewis, and then tested positive for an anabolic steroid. Congress went nuts. And they, as a solution to get steroids out of sports, they made testosterone and other anabolic steroids into a Schedule Three controlled substance. So with regards to now testosterone, obviously now it's a controlled substance. Now, it's my understanding that there is a push to deschedulize testosterone. And that push isn't coming from a community that you would think it would come from, such as professional bodybuilders or people in say the fitness space or you know, just the, I guess the health and longevity space. It's coming from right. an area that uh, it's just kind of, it, it's unique, but they have an incredible powerful lobby. Can you kind of touch on that? I've, I've heard numbers like that there's four million or more American men who are on testosterone replacement therapy. So there's a lot of, uh, I've heard kind of through the grapevine that there are a lot of politicians and, and lawyers and doctors who are also on testosterone, and, and including some judges who are on TRT. 
Um, and so, but but that that's not where it's coming from. That that is not there's there's no lobby that has ever been effective in getting attention to deschedule testosterone in any of that kind of traditional um, community. It is actually the LGBTQ mm. community, particularly you know, people who are born assigned female and are interested in either changing their gender to become male or in some cases simply looking to be more masculine along a, a spectrum of you know female to masculine characteristics so those people who who are prescribed testosterone for that transgender purpose from you know assigned female to uh, a male um, to, to a male or, or more masculine persona um, they have to deal with the controlled substance status, its stigma, uh, its its disincentive to doctors to potentially to get involved in it, its uh, limitations on access. There's a lot of you know a lot more record keeping. There's a lot more restrictions on controlled substances than on traditional prescription drugs like antibiotics or or you know other things. And so. Um, so interestingly, two U.S. senators um, were presented with this issue by the trans community, and they actually wrote a letter to the Biden administration arguing and urging that testosterone be removed from the Controlled Substances Act or in some way reduced in its, um, uh, in its treatment and restrictions because it does have a, a, a negative impact specifically on the trans community. So where that's going to go, I don't know. It, it's really the only uh, attention I've ever seen in, in all these years since 1990 um, by folks in, on Capitol Hill uh, in a way that would be more lenient for testosterone as opposed to more you know aggressive on it. So it's going to be very interesting to see, yes, you know, the LGBT community is now a strange bedfellow to, to the bodybuilding, the hypogonadal, and, and these other um, communities, which probably in terms of raw numbers are vastly more than the tiny uh, percentage of folks who are female to male transgender. But um, it, it's going to be interesting to watch and see what happens. I would think that a movement to push for the deschedulization of testosterone politically, just kind of going in that area, would be kind of a much easier sell than we just want to deschedulize it for, for health and longevity or simply for performance reasons. You know, because right. you get into the, well, we want to keep sports clean right. versus the other end, which is the transgender community saying, well, we have the right to live our lives the way we want to, and this is a choice that we're making. So to me, yeah. I think that politically, it would be a lot easier to sell that argument than to sell, well, I just want to feel better about, you know, I, 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 want, to, I want to look better, uh, I, I want to feel better. And as far as performance, again, that seems like a a much weaker political position is that, is that i mean would you agree with yeah, that yeah well sure I, th I think one of the strongest political positions for advocacy now is is anything related to identity so if you identify uh and, and the drug is necessary to further that 
self-identity, I think that's that's a much stronger argument than anything else. And really, as far as performance in sports, the only reason that testosterone is a controlled substance in the first place is because of sports, because athletes can use it to get an advantage over athletes who are not using it or other anabolic steroids and that was deemed to be something that needed to be solved by controlled substance status. I don't think it was solved by controlled substance status and we've had obviously numerous sports doping scandals since 1990 so I, I, I hazard that it probably hasn't been all that effective as a as a solution to it um, and nor has it been very effective in curtailing the black market. I think very often when you when the government tries to suppress legitimate channels of distribution, we know what happens, right? If there's demand, there's supply, and so the black market balloons, and I think that has happened since 1990. So kind of wrapping this up, but just getting to a point where, let's say that the government gets there to a point where they deschedulize testosterone, and now it becomes something, a drug where you just need a prescription so you can obtain it through an I guess, online source, you don't actually have to go see the doctor to actually to obtain it. Do you think that we'll get to a point where eventually testosterone becomes a non-prescription drug, like similar to what's happened with, with marijuana in some states? Do you think we'll get there? Yeah, I, I don't know if we're ever going to get there because it really depends on, on the special interests and the pressure and, and political cloud of special interests. I think that the anti-doping establishment will always push hard against the too free access to any kind of androgen or male hormone that has an anabolic effect, a muscle building effect. And, and obviously steroids don't make you a better athlete in, in every sport. There are some sports, it really may not matter all that much. Others, it may matter much more. And certainly, if you're uh, in a sport where it may involve strength or, or speed of muscle contraction or um, certainly powerlifting or, or you know, track and field or other sports, then um, or, or even um, cycling, as we saw from the Lance Armstrong scandal, or, or perhaps baseball, as we saw from that scandal. Uh, we've seen mixed martial arts scandals uh, as well. So anything where your your where physicality uh, and strength and, and power are more involved will be um, will be places where being on some testosterone or other androgen other anabolic steroid preparation arguably is going to give you an advantage um, to some degree over the other athletes and and it's you know is that a fair advantage certainly if it's banned in sports if it's if you're cheating then you know it, it's something that um, that needs to be dealt with well I mean these leagues could still test for it but I guess what I'm getting at is you can test for it you can't use it if you're playing in this professional sport even at the amateur level you could still test it's just my my theory is is that if we get to a point where it's deschedulized, then at some point, maybe within the next five or ten years, as we we begin to see more of a a aging population that that is 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 growing due to various life extension practices that are happening now, uh, people reaching the age of hundreds, you know, mm -hmm. hundred or beyond, right. Um, I, I think that that we may see that, um, but now it, it, it's certainly it's possible. You know, um, when when Congress 
scheduled testosterone and, and all the other variations of anabolic steroids in 1990, there really wasn't much of an anti-aging community. Uh, it was really before people, um, healthy men, typically 30, 40, 50 years old, began to realize, hey, you know, if I see my doctor, I can kind of turn back the clock. Back then, there wasn't even any publicity over the idea that testosterone levels diminish over time, that the guy who's, after you hit 30, they begin to go, maybe it's 1% a year, but it's a gradual decline of sort of the male equivalent to menopause, much, much slower, much more gradual, but still, you're going to have less testosterone at 40 than you had at 30 and less at 50 than you had at 40. And at some point, all of that diminishing testosterone is going to have effects on muscle mass, energy, all sorts of you know things that you know you you took for granted and there are those who believe that one of the reasons why we feel old is because we our testosterone levels drop our hormone levels change as we get older and that's in part why we we kind of age now and and, and this is probably a separate podcast but i mean look at the the professional athletes now we it, it's very common now to see professional athletes playing well into their 30s and and even their 40s tom brady obviously um and now obviously there's there's exceptions there but a lot of professional football teams i know used to have a cutoff when they said a, a player reached the age of 30 they begin to move on from them and right. um now it's it's very common to see athletes in their mid-30s playing so i guess yeah. the issue now now they're saying well you know, so I, I do think that 40 is the new 30 50 is the new right. 40 we, right. we people you know when, right. when I was young, 50, you were over the hill and, you know, you were sitting right. in an armchair, you know, with a with a blanket over your knees. And, you know, now it's it's a completely different world. And um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. We can obviously I've written a lot about these issues of anti-aging and hormones and anti-aging. Um, and uh, and certainly uh, I post a lot. You and I share social media connections on a number of things. So we'll continue talking about it and there's definitely room for more podcasts I, I guess the bottom line is um, is that uh, I think this hopefully sets the record straight on this proposed rule at least there's so much more that we could talk about in terms of freedom and and liberty and and you know um, whether you should have the right to make choices uh, with respect to your own body uh, with respect to these hormones um, there's all sorts of analogies we could make to cosmetic surgery approaches and, and different procedures there I mean there's we could do hours of right. podcasting on this topic but I think I think at least now for those who are like oh my god I'm gonna lose my testosterone uh, prescription those hopefully this has sort of calmed that down a little little bit and and again if you've ever seen your doctor ever who is prescribing testosterone then this new proposed rule doesn't apply at all to you so rick uh this has been great i want to thank you again for coming on if viewers have questions if they want to reach out to you if they have a a a question about this or or any legal matter that you could help them with where can they find you uh, on the internet so, yeah so i'm not i'm not hard to find so you can find me at rickcollins.com uh, or steroidlaw.com on the internet 
You can find me on social media. Um, I'm very active on uh, Instagram at Rick Collins ESQ. Rick Collins ESQ. Follow me there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and Twitter. So um, I'm easy to reach. And uh, just if you ever have a, a matter that you have some questions about that's kind of in my space uh, or other legal matters, um, happy to, to chat with you. I'm easy to reach through any of those sources. Well, Rick, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we do appreciate it. Um, like I said at the start of this podcast, my office frequently consults with Rick on various issues. He is a tremendous resource. And I, vice versa. Oh, yes. Thank you, Rick. Uh, but he is a tremendous resource. Um, I believe that he is really the legal authority with regards to performance-enhancing drugs in the country, and, and this is really his area. But his law firm does cover... Long Island and the New York City area and maintains a practice focused on criminal defense as well as personal injuries and personal injury and and as well as some estate work. Yes. 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 So if you have questions, my I, I have my little niche. I also do a, a lot of just generalized um, litigation work involving other types of white collar and other criminal work. But my my partners do a lot of bread and butter criminal defense as well as auto accidents and, and slip and falls and all the basic negligence kind of plaintiff's negligence work. So if you hear of any case like that, certainly call me and I'll be happy to help you. Once again, thank you. And this has been the Gambone Law Podcast. Thank you all for listening and we will talk to you all very soon.